When it comes to the Bible, and in particular the Gospels, the books that tell the story of Jesus' life, there's a widespread view taken for granted in many circles today that after Jesus died, his followers told stories about their experiences with him, and these stories got passed down through the Christian community, and finally, long after the events themselves took place, they were written down, and that's the Gospels we have today. So the Gospels, in, in this um, popular view, the Gospels give us a Jesus that has been filtered, filtered through the perspective and the agendas of those early Christian communities. Now, when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, according to this view, Jesus was not raised from the dead. And the story of his resurrection is a myth that was invented by the early Christians. Now, for the first part of the sermon... I want to reason with you by presenting three pieces of evidence that the account I've just read, the account from Luke 24, that this is actually reliable testimony of eyewitnesses. And it's not a myth invented years after the fact. That's the first part of the sermon. For the second part of the sermon, I'll point out what the resurrection means according to these eyewitnesses and what it means for us today. So, I feel like this thing is weird. So first, the evidence for the resurrection, some evidence for the resurrection, and then the meaning of the resurrection, the evidence. Let's start with the women. Uh, Now, the women in the room. Uh, those women that went and found the empty tomb. You see, women were not regarded as credible witnesses in the ancient world. Did you notice how the male disciples responded to the account of the women? Look at verse 11. If you have a Bible, look at Luke chapter 24, verse 11. When the women tell the men... He's he's been raised from the dead. The men respond, these words seem to the men an idle tale. And they did not believe them. Idle tale. That's actually in the original um, language that the New Testament was written in. It was written in Greek. The word there, it's, it's the word used by physicians to describe the delirious babbling of a seriously ill patient. The male disciples, they dismissed the account of an empty tomb and a conversation with angels. Why? Part of the same reason you would dismiss it. That's crazy. But also because the people giving them this account, they were women in a world that was fundamentally biased against women giving testimony. Now, we don't know precisely when the Gospels were written. But the evidence strongly suggests that the Gospels we have in, in, the, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that they were written somewhere between 20 and 60 years after the events occurred. But nobody inventing stories like this 20 years later, let alone 50 or 60 years later, nobody would have done it like this. 
If these stories were invented in that culture, they would have not used women as the linchpin of the whole argument because the culture did not operate that way. Pagan culture, Jewish culture, Greek culture, Roman culture, they didn't operate that way. If these stories had been invented many, many decades later, they would have certainly included fine, upstanding, reliable male witnesses as the first to see the empty tomb. When we read that Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the other women were at the tomb on Easter morning, that they are the eyewitnesses then we are facing evidence suggesting we are reading an actual eyewitness account because if you were looking for people to believe you about such an impossible thing in the ancient world, you would not have made it up this way. A second piece of evidence that Luke 24 verses 1 to 12 is actual eyewitness testimony is the strange absence of the Old Testament in this passage of Scripture. Up to this point in Luke's gospel, there's hardly a line, hardly an event goes by where Luke, the narrator, does not quote or allude to the Old Testament. Those of you who have been with our church for the last several weeks, we've been doing that, marching through these stories and seeing how they're deeply rooted in the Old Testament. Why? Because Luke, who's telling the story, is making it clear that Jesus' teaching and his death is deeply rooted in the Old Testament, in the experience and the expectation of Israel. But suddenly, when you get to the story of Jesus' resurrection, it all stops. There is virtually no reference, no echo, no allusion, no quoting of the Old Testament. Now, that is remarkable. In and of itself, that's remarkable, but it gets even more remarkable when you read the historical documents talking about the resurrection 25 years later. When you read the the rest of the New Testament that was written several decades after the event, Anytime they refer to Jesus' death and resurrection, they always do it in this way. They had a basic creedal formula. Jesus died and rose again according to the scriptures. Starting 25 years after the event, that is the standard way to refer to the resurrection. So the attentive reader, whether he's a skeptic or a literary analyst, or a historian, or a person of faith, the attentive reader who's paying attention to the texture of the literature is going to ask why. Why suddenly did it stop the, con- the constant cadence of rooting the story of Jesus' life in the Old Testament? Why the sudden and conspicuous absence of references to the Old Testament when you get to this slice of the story, the part about his resurrection? And the most probable explanation, not the only option, but the most probable way of handling the data is that we are reading the eyewitness account of people who were filled with fear and doubt. They were perplexed. And they had no way of connecting this to the Old Testament. This is not a polished, fabricated scrap 
of a story developed late in the first century. This is the raw account of puzzled eyewitnesses. I didn't understand it at the time, and I'm not sure I do now, but this is more or less how it happened. A third piece of evidence that Luke 24, verses 1 to 12, is eyewitness testimony to the events themselves and not something made up late in the first century. Listen to this passage from another book in the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. This was written around 50, in the late 50s AD. So we're talking 20 years or so, 25, 30 years after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Now this is just one example of how the entire New Testament treats the resurrection except for the Gospels. Listen again. The way this verse of Scripture treats the resurrection is the same way every one of our songs we sang this morning, except one, treats the resurrection. It connects the resurrection of Jesus to our resurrection. It says, because Jesus was raised, we will be raised from the dead. It connects Jesus' resurrection with our hope in surviving death. You see, as soon as the early church began to reflect on the resurrection of Jesus, to preach on it, to theologize about it, to teach about it, to explain it and unpack it and live into it, as soon as they did that, they began to say, Jesus has been raised, and because Jesus was raised from the dead, we also will be raised. But that connection is not made in any of the Gospels. It is nowhere in the Gospel accounts. When the Gospel writers tell the story of Jesus' resurrection, they do not point out at any point in time Jesus being raised from the dead having anything to do with us being raised from the dead. You see, if the Gospel resurrection stories had been invented... Late in the first century, it would have been virtually impossible to keep this element out. Because by the 50s, when AD 50, by the 50s, whenever believers talked about the resurrection of Jesus, they always connected it to their future hope. There were lots of reasons for this. People were starting to die, both of natural causes and because of persecution. And so they began to realize that the resurrection gave them hope. It is unbelievable that four writers inventing a story late in the first century would have come up with different Easter stories and that each one would have omitted the central claim of virtually every Christian in that culture when it came to the resurrection. Now, these three pieces of evidence, obviously, are not historically undeniable. But they are at least historically very probable. This isn't all of the evidence suggesting that we're dealing with eyewitness testimony. But it's a sampling. And it goes right to the heart of some of the key claims of those who argue that the resurrection of Jesus 
did not occur. It's, and not only do they go to the heart of it, they're just a representative sampling of, of a lot more evidence. And so what I'm saying to you this morning, there is strong, reliable, historical, rational evidence that Jesus was raised from the dead. But here's the catch. Evidence is not enough to force anyone to believe something. Have you ever been in an argument? Especially something, let's admit, as utterly impossible as the claim that Jesus was raised from the dead. That's impossible. Left brain rationality alone cannot take you to belief in that. You cannot argue right up to the central truth of Christian faith by pure human reasoning based on simple observation of the world. And yet, God has given us minds to think. And so we should think carefully and deeply and rationally about the historical evidence for the resurrection. After all, this is an astounding, worldview-challenging claim. Who believes people rise from the dead and go walking around eating things? This challenges our whole view of how the laws of nature work. The idea that someone has risen from the dead is so shocking, so earth-shattering, so impossible that you are right to pause before leaping into belief. A person can always say, Okay, there's the evidence, and if they look at lots more of it and all of the evidence weighs up, a person can always say, all right, Aubrey, I admit I cannot think of a more probable explanation when all of the evidence is laid out, but I know there must be one because I refuse to stop my presupposition that dead people don't come to life. What I'm saying is that cautious agnosticism is always an option. In fact, that's the story of how of Jesus' own disciples in this passage. None of them believe it. Even the ones who talk to the angels, Peter himself, all of them are surprised and astonished and confused and skeptical. Look, don't think that we're a sophisticated society. We know people don't rise from the dead and they didn't. Listen, they lived closer to death than we do. They had not anesthetized death from their life. It is historical arrogance to read these and to think that we're sophisticated and they were naive. That's the lie of the enlightenment. We've been enlightened. People before us were idiots. Now, for those who seek truth, as I talk about the meaning of the resurrection, what I want to say to you if, is this. As impossible as it is, if it did indeed happen, then it is the turning point in history. And while it takes us by surprise, it changes everything. 
To get at the meaning of the resurrection, I want you to remember the last piece of evidence I mentioned. At no point does Luke or any gospel writer mention life after death for Christians when they talk about the resurrection. Neither going to heaven when you die, life after death, eternal life, nor the resurrection of all God's people. None of that is so much as mentioned in the gospel accounts. Now, all of that stuff is true. And it definitely comes up in the Bible. But when we shoehorn that teaching from a, from a later date in Scripture, when we shoehorn that teaching into the Gospels, we end up missing the climactic point of all four Gospels. And it's this. At the resurrection, the God of Israel, who was the creator of the whole world, had begun the work of new creation. The resurrection is not about you going to heaven, even though that's what every song we sang said. We just didn't have any other songs to choose from. The resurrection is not about you going to heaven after you die. It is about God remaking the whole world, remaking it into a new heavens and a new earth. He started the new creation with Jesus. There he is. He's the same, but he's different. He's got parts. He's got the material that did constitute his body, but he's got a different material. This is a whole new thing that has never existed before. Here is a body that is at home in heaven and on earth simultaneously. It can eat like earthly people. It can move through walls like spiritual things. This is a new creation. God started the new creation with Jesus. He remade Jesus' body, and that was the first act of God's new creation. Now, sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, well, Jesus is alive again, and he's gone to heaven, and one day we'll go to be with him. But that is precisely not what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are saying. What they are saying is Jesus is alive again, therefore new creation has begun, therefore we have a job to do now. This comes out Very strongly, if you keep reading through Luke chapter 24. The the early Christians believed that the resurrection had begun with Jesus. And it would be completed in the final resurrection. On the last day. And therefore, because we live in between these two moments. God had called those early disciples to work with him. In the power of the spirit in the present, to implement the achievement of Jesus and thereby to anticipate the final resurrection when all things will be made new. And we should do this work, the original disciples said, in our personal life and in our political life, in mission and in holiness. Something has already started to happen. God's new world, God's new creation. And now we collaborate with God to take that project forward. So what is it that we're missing when we read the Gospels through the lens of Paul and don't know we're doing that? What is it that we're missing when we use up from the grave he arose and other great songs like that? And that becomes our interpretive lens for the Gospels. Well, here's what happens. 
When we read the gospel through the lens that the whole point of Jesus' story is let's go to heaven when we die, as if that was the main issue he was dealing with, what we end up doing is we reduce the kingdom of God to personal piety. Now, it is about that, but it's about a lot more than that. And by, by reading the gospel through the lens of let's go to heaven when we die, we stop the gospels there with personal piety, and we reduce the victory of the cross to comfort for our conscience. And we reduce the resurrection of Jesus to a happy escapist ending after the horror and the shame of the crucifixion. Now, don't get me wrong. Personal piety, comfort, happiness, these are important things. But they are skewing our view of the resurrected Jesus and what it means to be a Christian today. The resurrection of Jesus is the validation of Jesus' claim to be the Messiah of Israel and thus the king of the whole world. The resurrection of Jesus is the start of the new creation. And it is the commissioning of his followers to announce Jesus is king to the world. And it is the commissioning of his followers to work with God in the power of the spirit to implement the new creation, to work with God in the power of the spirit for truth, for justice, and for beauty. The gospels say nothing about our life after death. Now, that was important to Scripture. It was not the main point. They don't talk about going to heaven or anything like that when they talk about the resurrection. That comes up in the rest of the New Testament. It is important. But what comes up right here at Jesus' resurrection is that we have a job to do. We have tasks to perform. There are things God wants us to do right here in Harrisonburg and in the valley. And we need to do them. You need to make your contribution. The whole point of Easter is that God is going to sort out this whole world. He's going to put the whole thing right once and for all. This world, not just something we call heaven. And the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning, the first fruits of that incredible work. The resurrection of Jesus is the launching of this thing we call the kingdom of God. One of the great points of being a Christian is to learn how to spot what needs to be done in our city, in our valley, in our culture, and to get on with it. That's what the resurrections stories are about, according to the gospel writers. And do you see how turning them into some, I go to heaven when I die, creates this weird little thing that doesn't give a flip about all of life we live now. It's just waiting on the sweet by and by. This is what Mike Trainum has given his life to. Two decades ago, Mike saw a massive problem in the development community that works in the majority world countries. Do you know about Mike's ceaseless labor for the most underprivileged on the planet? And do you know about Macy? You know Macy Kimsey in our church? Do you know what Macy's job is? 
Her job is to care for grown adults with severe disabilities, even though the job pays far less than a livable wage. But there is a massive need in our society for the most vulnerable among us to be accepted on their own terms with their limitations. I never get tired of learning about Alec. Where's Alec? He's somewhere in here. I never get tired of learning about Alec and Elf's work as farmers. You see, to be reconciled to God always involves being reconciled to his creation. We are all victims of today's industrial food culture, and it is marked by injustice and estrangement. But there is much more in the Bible regarding our relationship to creation than simply using creation to give us what we want. We live in a world marked by deforestation, the loss of biodiversity and shortage of clean water. But Alex's work with the land, it helps us to rediscover the human place in creation as a creature along with other creatures. We are addicts of domination and excess. And we need to swallow the bitter pill that God gave us in Job chapters 38 through 39. Nothing like these two chapters has been written since until you get to the writings of John Muir. Then there's Paula Cook. Her tireless work for the Harrisonburg Pregnancy Center. Her courageous trips into the JMU classrooms to talk about sexuality in a way that, is, that has dignity and humanity to it. Her deep commitment to Christian education in this community. There's Ben Velker and Matt Robertson and Katrina Dito and Gil Coleman. As I watch them establishing businesses that, that threaten to consume them, that challenge them, as they at the same time reach out and try to embrace their vocation as businessmen and businesswomen, and, and as they try to understand that as the main area that God has called them to serve their neighbors and to partner with God in his loving care of the world. Our community desperately needs good, just, true, beautiful businesses, and it needs their particular businesses. I think about Melissa Coleman's work for our community as a homemaker. We desperately need houses all through this community that are oases of beauty and hospitality. If we don't have that in our community, our community will tank. We're, we need houses where children like Ben and June are raised with the loving, direct, full-time attention of a parent. College students, what about you? Uh, Josh and Sarah, it's amazing to watch as you're de developing a vision for what it means to grow your own food and save water and use less oil and reduce your carbon footprint and shop for items that do not involve the suffering of fellow humans or other living creatures. As I watch your worldview being transformed from what our society offers, which is something based on greed, to a wor worldview that is based on care. Josh, I wonder where this is going to lead you. It's astonishing. And so many other students here, you need to pray 
all of us need to pray for God's wisdom and direction to see where we belong in God's kingdom. This is work. There is work that you, you, as individuals, need to do in this community. Work that we need you to do in this community. Easter work. What will it be? What will be your contribution? Jesus is alive. Therefore, new creation has begun. And our job is to work with God in the power of the Spirit in the present to implement the achievement of Jesus and thereby to anticipate the final resurrection. When Jesus was raised from the dead, something started to happen. God's new world broke through. God's new creation And now God is collaborating with his people to take that project of truth and beauty and justice to take it forward. Now, maybe some of us feel like the women at the tomb, shocked, astonished by the great truth that is starting to dawn on you. The great drama into which you finally suddenly find yourself being caught up. And you may well need, as the women at the tomb, to take some time to process how huge this is. But Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And we who find ourselves caught up in that great earth-shattering event have no choice but to learn how to live right now Already in the light both of the resurrection that has occurred and of the future resurrection when all will be made new. We need to learn how to think and pray and live resurrection habits that give us the ability to spot what needs doing in God's world and to get on with doing it. And as we do this, we take our proper place in the kingdom of God as we make Easter a reality in our world today. Let's pray.